Welcome to Afro Catalyst. I'm Isaac Kwekufoko Jr., founder of Boltway Emerging Markets Group, a leading consultancy focused on the global south. On Afro Catalyst, we talk to trailblazers who are shaping Africa's future to understand the challenges and opportunities they face in pushing their respective industries forward. Coming up, award-winning British-Nigerian journalist Stephanie Busari, the mastermind behind CNN's digital storytelling in West Africa, shaping the network's coverage of the region and beyond. It's a role that's earned Stephanie global recognition, especially for her reporting on the kidnapped Chibuksko girls, which even resulted in a coveted Peabody Award. She was also recognized as a Yale Fellow in 2020. In this episode, I talked to Stephanie about her two decades in the media industry and how moving back to Nigeria transformed her career. This is our conversation. It's been a crazy, crazy, crazy year and a half. Every conversation starts with what's going on with COVID, what's going on in your life. Uh, so I think we need to do justice to the time period by, by acknowledging what's been happening in the world. In terms of your work and your team, how has that changed? Uh, how have you adapted to this new remote, uh, remote way of working, especially in a jurisdiction that perhaps is a bit challenging when it comes to data and you know um, things of that things that are maybe of, of convenience in other other parts of the world? How have you guys, how have you adapted to that? Yes, so I mean it's it's been one of the biggest changes of my working career, um, but you know actually my team and I were like I'd adopted a kind of semi-remote working uh, approach before COVID because we live in Lagos. It's hugely congested in terms of traffic and, and commutes. And so we found that there were days where my team was spending like three to four hours in traffic just to get into work. So we kind of instituted a semi-remote you know, if you want to come in and make use of internet or the office facilities, come in. But if you if you're if you you're happy to work from home, you know, do, let's let's do that. So it was almost kind of like preempting the new working model that we found ourselves in. Just being at home under lockdown, with kids at home as well, everything just standing still. That was a huge challenge, but of course journalists um, were busier than ever having to chronicle this uh, crazy moment in our life, um, in our lifetime. And, uh, you know, I was raising a, a child, doing schoolwork, running a, a team, reporting, and, and all of these things, um, like many millions of others uh, at the same time. So, yeah, an unforgettable time. Interesting. I got to ask you, Stephanie. So I, I believe you grew up in, you're born in Nigeria, but you grew up mostly in, in the UK. And then you came back to Nigeria for your job now, right? Is that correct? Yes, I was born in Lagos and I was, I lived here until I was 12, actually. So a lot of my formative years were in Lagos. So I went to boarding school briefly for two years uh, in a Nigerian school. Uh, I started secondary school at 10. And so uh stayed until 12 and then i moved to the uk to london to join my my parents who were there um and then i lived in the uk for like more than 20 years before i came back to to lagos to essentially do 
what is my dream job heading up the bureau out here uh, for CNN. How do you think growing up in both countries has shaped your identity and your career as a journalist? I, I always say that I got the best of both worlds living here until I was 12, you know, so I was cognizant of my environment. I spoke the language. I had a real strong grounding in my Nigerian identity before I left. So I think that always stood me in good stead. You know, um, I I had a real song, strong sense of self and who I was. Um, and the expectations on me as a Nigerian girl were very different to say maybe some of the my my counterparts that I encountered in the UK who maybe like kind of going through a UK comprehensive system, South uh, uh, kind of school system that sometimes has lower aspirations of them. So, you know, I like as a Nigerian, you either be a doctor or lawyer or, you know, you just knew these are your paths. Um, and, you know, I, I was very invested in my kind of future and I worked really hard towards that. So there was not a disconnect between those expectations and my uh, my desires. Uh, and I think growing up in both worlds makes you a more empathetic person. You understand where people are coming from because you have lived their culture, you've lived in their environment, you know what makes them tick, you know why they do certain things, for example. And speaking a Nigerian language, I understand when a Nigerian person of my language is communicating and they might say things because it's a direct translation of what, how they would say it in a language. It may not make sense when translated in English, but I instinctively know why, why they're saying something in the way they're saying it. So I think it makes you more empathetic. And as a journalist, that's critical to be able to um, see where people are coming from and understand why they're making certain decisions or what cultural instincts drive them. So I'm really thankful of that, that experience um, in, in, in shaping my worldview. I think it, it makes me very open and accepting to, to people and, and the way they live or, and the way they, and the way they um, make their decisions, etc. So, I'm always thankful of that. There's a critique and just a, a provocative is around the fact that folks like yourselves and myself, I left Ghana when I was 16 years old, was gone for a very long time as well, that we don't truly understand Africa. So we come back and we pretend we're Africans, but really we're not Africans. I mean, so how, how do you respond to identity and sort of career quest and also this pushback against, yeah, but you, you are just like these Uibo guys. <laughs> there is a tendency to think that you understand Africa's ills really well because we were born here and we grew up here, but I really didn't. There is an, a, a cultural adjustment that must be made when you come back because to a certain extent, you have become westernized in your thinking. If you like, you know, okay, so I was here until 12. It shaped me my early years, but the years from 13 to my late 20s, 30s, I've really grown up in this system, in this culture, you know. So that environment has also shaped largely who I am. And they are worlds apart, actually, you know, when you think about 
a British lifestyle versus a Nigerian lifestyle. So the mistake a lot of us come um, in Nigeria, we're called IJGB, which means I just got back. <laughs> so like, you know, it's very disparaging that, that you know, they'll be talking, oh yeah, oh yeah, she's an IJGB. And they're like, oh, and so it's like, yeah, it's like an understanding. <laughs> so exactly. So it's a shorthand for oh, okay, I understand. She's she's one of us, but she's not because she's different. And I think there's a tendency sometimes for us to come back and think that we know better than people who live in these countries. Like, oh my God, why is this like this? And why are you doing like this? You know, you know, you are assuming a lot of knowledge and assuming a lot of things um by thinking that your way is more superior um and there are just things that can't be adapted from where you're coming from to this environment because of xyz factors that have not been considered um that's why i always say you know i always believe that the diaspora has an incredible um amount to contribute to african countries because they often have a passion for the motherland, quote unquote, uh, sometimes greater than people who live there. They have a heart to change. They have access to great education. They have great ideas uh, and innovations that could change lives in, in their countries of origin. And also they have access to credit and, and finance, you know. But what we cannot do as people who come back is to impose our ideas or believe that our ideas are better or, you know, you must always partner with people where you're going, collaborate to find out and, and observe, observe to find out what, if really your idea is going to scale as you think, if really your idea is going to make that impact you think it will, because more often than not, it doesn't. So that's, I think, the mistake that a lot of IJGBs <laughs> um make and uh you assume that people think like you just because you think like that so there's a lot of unlearning that i had to do when i came um and a lot of cultural nuances so the british way is very direct very um you know you're very kind of yep yeah, this is what we're doing how we're doing look but i had to learn I'm still learning, in fact, <laughs> to temper my language, to soften it, to to be more conciliatory, especially when you're dealing with men. African men are very traditional at times or can be very traditional. So when you're in a position of authority as a woman addressing an African man, it's there, there can be like a clash sometimes, you know, because they don't accept your authority always. That's one thing I've always, I, I've also had to learn. So, yeah, I mean, um, a lot of things, a lot of things that I've had to learn and unlearn. So <laughs> it's been a, it's been a journey. No, and I really love what you said about this idea of scaling and thinking that your, your, your idea is the smartest idea in the room. And I think you see this a lot. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of times you start believing your own hype, right? You start believing your own hype and thinking that because you went to XYZ school and you worked at ABC company that everyone knows, the person you're dealing with who didn't go to the same school or the same company doesn't know better or whatever. And I think that the humility to understand that 
we don't always know. And there are people who have actually done stuff. And I tell people in the, in, the, in the business what I say to them, when I meet an African who's built and scaled a business, who didn't go to any school overseas, I have so much respect for him or her because what they had to do and how resilient they are to build what they built, it is incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. That's why Africans thrive whenever they go abroad because we've had to build so much out of so little. So when we like get to environments where there is so much more, it's more enabling, we fly, we soar because we're just some of some, you know, it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe my luck. I get this, this and this, like, I don't have to, you know, pay for like diesel. I don't have to, you know, but you know, it's, it's completely operational costs for, for many African businesses, particularly in a country like Nigeria, where the infrastructure is quite some, it's quite deficit. Um, you know, those operational costs are huge. So your profit margins are really, really um, affected. Um, and, and then when you go out elsewhere and all of your um, kind of, the business environment is a lot more friendly, then you're gonna do much better, you know, cause you're prepared to put in the work. Absolutely. But, but I bet that also this, I mean, it's a bit easier, but it's also has some challenges. And in your case, I guess one of the things I'm curious about is that climbing up the corporate ladder of a big Western organization as a minority is not easy. And, you know, it's one thing to be a, minor, a minority from the country. It's a different thing to be a minority from another country, a country that is considered a bit less worthy of people's whatever, right? And, and I guess, to, to what extent do you feel like you have to be a model minority? You know, I think sometimes we have this, what I call the blackbird, in that if you don't do well, you're going to mess it up for everybody else. <laughs> so so how, how much do you have to model the behavior? And did you feel that pressure amongst us? Did you feel the pressure or were you able to just be you? I'm Stephanie, I'm competent, I'm smart, I'm who I am, I represent myself. How, how do you balance those things? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Um, and because I, you know, so when I got to CNN in 2008, for example, I was working a lot on the Africa beat. So immediately my kind of focus was on Africa, doing African stories. So that was, that kind of made it easier, I suppose, for me in a sense. Um, but yeah, the model minority thing, I think you don't even realize um, it's a conscious thing. You just do it subconsciously because you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you don't want, I know, I think there were at the time only like a few of us. So you don't want to become the one that's like the angry black woman and all of that, you know, uh, narrative. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is a subconscious part of you that really thinks about all of these things, you know, but I've not kind of confronted major racism issues. I, th I think people confront it so, um, what's the word? So kind of, in your face anymore, you know, it's, it's usually unspoken. It's usually unsaid and it's usually behind your back. So you don't know about it, you know? Um, but I, I, I don't dwell on this, you know, because I can't, I can't change someone's mind about who I am. I can change how I progress. I can change how I, um, manage my career and take charge of my career. 
you know, someone's going to dislike me for a variety of reasons. So whilst I acknowledge that isms exist and I don't minimize them in any way because they can have a, such a detrimental impact on your career, it doesn't hamper me or my progress. I strive for excellence. I strive to be the best at what I do. I strive to, you know, create my own seat at that table. So you cannot but have me there because of my results. And that is what, it, that, that, that is what matters, you know. Of course, I faced opposition in my career, but um, my, my thing is outdo and outwork. <laughs> the best of them <laughs> and, and just keep rising and that that is always my plan just 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 put in the work and keep putting in the work and the results will so for themselves right absolutely Bro broadly speaking i mean there's a lot of been a lot of conversations especially in the west around representation i mean private equity firms everybody is talking about representation changing the face of their companies and everything else the media industry is no different i guess broadly speaking did you feel like this 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 wave of you know um of um representation and, and diversity in all spaces, is this a real thing or is this a window dressing thing just because of what events has happened over the last, the last 24 months has been highlighted, especially from the US? Oh, well, to be honest, who knows? I mean, we've been talking about this for so long um, and each wave appears to be more serious and more, um, more kind of well-meaning and um, determined than the last wave. But it's just like, why do we get, why do we got to keep talking about this? Why do we got to keep talking about this? I've been talking about diversity and representation for all of, all of my career, <laughs> the past 20 years. Um, you're either committed to doing it or you're not. So, you know, I, I think things like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of those things have helped to put pressure on people to say, actually, you know, we're done talking. We need to see more uh, decisive action. And, you know, I, I, I applaud um, initiatives, initiatives taken at CNN, whereby they have instituted stronger kind of um, policies to ensure that, you know, things are more representative and you know, they're kind of looking at the the culture of the organization all the time. And, you know, um, so, yeah, um, and it, we have a really excellent um, diversity and inclusion kind of officer who is making great strides. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it it will lead to lasting change. But, you know, my advice to mentees and people who are starting in a profession is always what I, uh, you know, do myself. Just they, they exist. These things exist. These challenges will come. But make sure that you are managing your career. Make sure that you're keeping your visibility high in any organizations. Make sure that you're speaking up in any room that you're in make sure that your ideas cannot be discounted, make sure that your talent is noticed and cannot be, um, cannot be denied or disputed. Uh, and, and if an organization is not to your benefit, then leave. There's hundreds of thousands of organizations out there. 
that you can work at that have different company cultures that will be better suited to you and and all of these things so yeah you know it it is about the individual for me the individual kind of really carving out the um opportunities that they want and i think i think in this day and age it's a lot easier to do that you have so many tools to enable you you know we used to be the gatekeepers of of the media the traditional media used to be gate gatekeepers but now anybody can bypass um those those traditional media traditional media still has, has its role but anybody can do a podcast anybody can set up a, a youtube channel and as long as they got great content they can really um bring an audience and the revenue to to do that um so these tools are there for the taken taking if you if you're not getting on it somewhere then just go and do your own thing or go somewhere else where you can be enabled to do your own thing yeah and i I think i think this also hits to the issue of agency and i think having the agent i mean you you have to understand you have your own agency to like you said to do what you need to do for yourself and 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 harnessing that and and employing in the way that works for you and and what you're trying to do with yourself last year you wrote a fantastic piece around um george floyd and risk and risk privilege and and i'm curious i mean around you know the role you think perspective such as yours and um in in the in that in the discourse around the, the discourse how the role that can play in uniting people of color from around the world or or, or does it even need to be that way um i just like to get your, your perspectives around that yeah you know so i wrote that piece because um i just was coming across a lot of narratives from some people on a continent um who were not understanding the african-american struggle because a lot of people on the continent have not confronted racism ever. You know, that is one of the huge benefits of living in a majority black country is that you you never confront racism, you know, you're a majority, so you never know what it's like to be in a minority and you have a strong sense of who you are and your identity, you know, which I mentioned earlier. So when I went to England, that was the first time I had confronted racism. And um you know, so I was, this narrative was really jarring with me, which, so I realized that, you know, when you talk about the model my, minority, a lot of Africans are going to a place like US and the UK, and they are being the model minority. It's not necessarily a good thing, uh, because, you know, they are riding on the opportunities that in the US, black Americans uh, struggled and died for, you know, during the civil rights movement and other movements. So they're going over there and taking advantage of of these opportunities, which is great. But don't forget the struggle and the oppression that many African Americans still face. That was, in essence, what I was trying to say in that piece, that, you know, you can go there and excel, but don't discount the struggle. And I hear the disparaging terms all the time. Oh, you know, they're just lazy. They don't want to work. All of these very, very negative narratives that are detrimental and don't even try to understand 
the centuries of, of, of oppression that African-Americans have gone through. So, you know, that was essentially why I wrote that article. And to say that as Africans, we have race privilege because we have not had to deal with the burden, mental oppression of racism. Racism is in, insidious because it seeps inside you and it kind of makes you question who you are and your abilities. It sometimes turns you into a paranoid wreck, like your interactions are always, um, more often than not, coated with the, with the, was that, was that a race thing? Or was that not, was that, was that person off with me because of my color or just because they were being a douche or whatever, you know? So when you don't have to deal with that, it's almost like a drip drip effect. When you don't have to deal with that on a daily basis, you're free. You're free to think. You're free to, to you know, be like open and friendly and be the quote unquote the model minority who's just like everybody's my friend. Like you know, it's great. You know, but that's that's not the reality for millions uh, of uh, black people who have grown up in that country with. A terrible history of, you know, um, segregation, oppression, outright racism, you know. So we must always recognize their struggle and how they have paved the way for us to go over and, and take those opportunities. Yeah, and there's some ignorance in there too. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I tell people that for me, until I moved to the U.S. in the early '90s, when I thought of racism, I thought of South Africa, and we're all part of the Free Mandela movement. And then, you know, my 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 impression of America was, you know, I don't know, Mike Tyson or New Jack City or one, one, some of these things. It was, it was very it was very juvenile. <laughs> it was not, but but you're right. I think when you don't understand what people have gone through, that actually you are standing on the shoulders of giants and you're going to these schools because someone had to sacrifice for you to go there. You're getting these jobs because someone had to pay the price for you to go there. You you don't understand. And I really like what you're saying around this idea of, you know, being free, that you 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 even don't, you can't even comprehend why the guys said what the guys said because it doesn't make sense to you. Like it doesn't, doesn't cross you at all. But if you live with this daily and it's part, it's been there generationally, I can't imagine how much it messes with you. And how much it just destroys your brain and doesn't give you the freedom to think and to think freely. That's like I would just rock up from Ghana and be like, my name is Isaac, I'm from Ghana. I'm a happy guy. You know, it's a different thing. Exactly. I always say that all black people should live in a majority black country at least once in their life. Because it's freeing. It's freeing not to have to wonder if your interactions are tinged with that burden of racism. You know, um, so I describe in the article an incident that even now when I think about it, I'm so upset. I was walking with my daughter um, in South London, where we lived at the time, and um, I was, I just picked her up from nursery. She was like maybe two years old. And we were walking, you know, she was telling me about her day, and we were, you know, just mother daughter interactions. And some, a, a lady, a white lady was coming in front of me and she clutched her bag in such a obvious way, like, oh, there's, there's a black person, they might rob me, you know? And I was just, I was so outraged. 
and angered that no matter that no I was with my child like why would I rob you with my child why can't you see beyond um you know why can't you see a mother and a child you know when I see a mother and child my instinct is oh that's cute why do you see me uh and my child and your instinct is that I'm gonna rob you I mean for me that kind of killed something in me that day to be honest and I really wanted my daughter to grow up in a place where she was just accepted um, unconditionally. And I think the five years that she's spent here in Nigeria have really helped shape her confidence, her outlook as a young as a young girl growing up, that there's no um, limitations. There are no limitations placed on that here. She is just going to fly as high as she wants to without someone saying, yes, but you're from X, Y, and Z. You know, these are the options available to you. Her options have no limit. And for me, that's the kind of uh, enabling environment that being in a majority Black country gives to you as a Black person. You are always accepted regardless of who you are what you look like i mean we have other issues i'm not it's not a utopia (laughs) we have other issues but um you know it it is race isn't one of them yeah no that's true i mean it's funny i should tell the story i recall times when i'm walking behind someone and i need to i want to shake my keys or shake the coins so they're not behind them so i I don't startle them you know you you have to make sure that you're safe around people and it's just it's just not a very good feeling uh when when you when when you when when you have to live like this sometimes so no thank you for sharing that you know you you mentioned empathy earlier and sort of this idea of being in the middle of two cultures understanding the cultures um and i think for me nothing illustrates what you're saying more than the work you've done yourself one of the things also you talked about, you touched on earlier, is this idea that anybody can do a podcast. I'm doing a podcast. Anybody can have another kind of platform. What is the responsibility? And this, you know, this fake news thing, this fake news thing keeps coming up over and over again, right? Um, what are observations around, you know, fake fake news, fake, fake news in general, um, and also specifically, the responsibility of a platform to its audience when it comes to these conversations? Should there be one? Enormous. There's an enormous responsibility. We're all publishers now, you know, there's no longer a filter through gatekeepers uh, who are actually trained professionals. Um, But, you know, even that in itself, journalism is so agenda driven or can be so agenda driven these days. So as publishers and everybody who has a platform who publishes anything, be it a Twitter account, be it an Instagram account or, uh, you know, whatever a platform you have on the internet where you are publishing, where you are saying something, we all have a responsibility to verify what we're saying uh, is correct, to making sure that we are um, not tweeting or posting something with an agenda that's clearly untrue, you know. So, you know, we just have to, information is so sacred now, facts are so sacred um, that that responsibility is um, enormous on everybody. 
which is why I, I always laughed when people say that CNN is fake news because the rigor and the the um, the kind of uh, editorial hoops we have to jump through um, to make sure that before anything is published, we have verified and and cross-referenced and cross-checked, you know, and it goes to senior editors who also backstop our reporting. So yeah, you know, um, that that responsibility is critical. And, you know, I think a lot of people can be naive about information they read online. So the onus on, is on you to check who has published this. Can I find it in another credible traditional mainstream media platform, you know, where people have taken the time to um, verify where they have trained professionals who, um, you know, kind of that's part of their job to filter out the propaganda and the lies and the and the um, misinformation to present the facts is are these people talking about this or is it a niche platform that is the sole source of this information you know so that that is really important check check the source before you share because every time you share something then it puts it out there and then someone else shares it and it becomes uh established and i'll give you an example so you know people don't even read beyond the headlines um there, there was a satirical so this this um platform says everything you read here is satire right at the top very bold and it was a, a ridiculous story about <laughs> but nigerian about some some chinese had been caught with penises from nigerian men and it was like oh my god are these people doing ritual with our body parts you know like someone shared it someone shared it and said oh this is funny and it just kept i i, I kept seeing it on my timeline it was being re- retweeted and nobody read to say this is a satirical site and so you, you could whip up anti-chinese sentiment just from a, a tweet like that you could like get people thinking that body parts are being stolen from men in nigeria you know it's just so irresponsible um, and yeah, okay, so it's the satirical website has said quite clearly, we are satire, but how many people are going to read that? How many people do actually click through and read the article? So read the, I, I really love what Twitter's done now where they say, do you, do you want to read the article first before you retweet? You know, because they know, they know that people are just, oh, look at that headline. It might be misleading. It might be not the full picture. Oh, I'm going to retweet it anyway. So just having that check to say, you know, do you want to retweet this? Do you want to read this before retweeting is quite important. Yeah, so check, verify um, before you share information. That's just critical. Everybody, everybody needs to do that. Interesting. And and I, I got to ask you, I mean, this balance, so you are someone who sort of cover the, I'd say the, the entire a holistic a holistic media approach, right? So you produce, you, you, you're on TV, you do all these things. How do you balance, especially also in, in Africa, as so you, you're covering Africa, which is going to be sensational. How do you, how do you balance that sensationalism? Because something, something must sell. There's a product someone must want to read. 
objectivity and the fact of an, a, something that may be agenda driven and, and those three things in concert how how, how how do you balance those well i mean i'm a storyteller and i think that you know what i say to my team is if you have to sell it if you have to um if you have to like kind of twist it and beyond what it actually is then it's not a story a story should sell itself you shouldn't have to jump through hoops to sell the story you can frame it in a way where your audience kind of makes it more relevant to them or makes it more appealing to them but as storytellers as journalists we shouldn't have to sell quote unquote a story if it's not if it's not working and i that my test is what is the headline when i'm pitched stuff what is the headline if you can't come up with a decent headline in two or three goes then we're not going to do it because it's obvious that story is a stretch um but you know in terms of agenda i mean i strive to be objective in my reporting in things i commission so there is no agenda um what I will always prioritize and always give attention to is stories that of gender equality, the girl child, you know, things like that, that I'm passionate about, but there's not, I, I don't believe in a gender driven journalism. I believe in objective kind of good storytelling. Um, something that just jumps out at you and that people will want to engage with. And, you know, that, that is the kind of brand of journalism that I, that I believe in. Thanks for listening to Afrocatalyst, presented by Boto Emerging Markets Group. Visit afrocatalyst.com for more. Remember to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. And let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Isaac Wekufo Virginia. Until next time.